0: I'm Kirsty, and you're listening to episode two, chapter one of my memoir, Gutter Glitter. This chapter is called He Said You're Really an Ugly Girl, which is a lyric taken from one of my all time favourite Tori Amos songs, Precious Things. If you're listening on Spotify, you will be able to hear the full track at the end of this episode fingers crossed that all goes well. (laughs) However, I do recommend either skipping ahead to the very end to listen to the song first. I'll timestamp it for you in the show notes or popping onto YouTube and searching the name. Alternatively, the music and memoir Spotify link is also in the show notes. I just think it's a really good idea to listen to the song first, but I didn't want to pop it in the intro just because I know that that can sometimes annoy people to have to listen to an entire song through first. So it's my recommendation, because I think it adds to the chapter to have listened to the song first. But of course, it's only my recommendation. Do your thing. I just wanted to say a really quick thank you to everyone who listened last week. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote a review or gave a five stars. Uh, It means the absolute world to me. This is the biggest project of my life and um, it's incredibly vulnerable sharing my heart and soul with you in this way. So every little bit of uh, validation (laughs) that I can absorb through your words um, and your stars and your emojis on Instagram uh, really, really does make it worthwhile. So thank you. I see all of your comments and you're very much appreciated and keep the five stars coming. I would be doing finger guns if you could see me right now and it would be very humiliating. So just imagine I didn't say that and that I am not doing it alone in my bedroom right now. All relevant links that you need will be in the show notes. So, links to wherever to find me on social media. Mostly, I just use Instagram at Gutter Glitter Memoir, so connect with me there. And the link tree will send you to iTunes, Spotify, where you can get my music, where you can eventually get the book. Pre sale will be available very soon. And. Anything else you need, I'm sure is there as well. I'm constantly adding to those links. I recently posted the video of Tuscany, uh, which is the song that was on last week's episode. So if you were interested in watching that, that's up on the Instagram. It's also on my YouTube. Finally, as promised, there will be another episode coming out later this week, which on the back of reading this chapter is an interview with my mum. So we get to talking about this time in my life and get her perspective on events. So that's sure to be an awkward one. (laughs) Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get into this week's chapter. Chapter one. He said you're really an ugly girl. Soundtrack, Tori Amos, Precious Things. I am a millennial child of the 90s who grew up in a white, middle-class home in the safest suburb of Australia's most livable city of Melbourne. Ending up here was a considered choice by my parents, who migrated from England to Australia with my brother Ben and me when we were just 26 months and 10 months old, respectively. I was the youngest of the jet-setters, with my big bro by my side taking good care of me a thankless task to which he would become accustomed to as time went on. My neighbourhood was right on the cusp of wine country and suburbia. We weren't in the outback, but it was bushy enough that when kids from other schools came to play into school sports, they would ask us if we rode to school on a kangaroo. Despite growing up in the safest place on earth, wedged between a Christmas tree farm and a field of adorable alpacas, I lived in fear. Today, it would be diagnosed as a severe case of general anxiety disorder. However, as I had no formal diagnosis, I was left to assume that it was normal to live in a state of perpetual terror. I thought everyone felt that way, and the other children had just learned to hide it better. So, that's what I did. I pretended my way through life. I performed okay. You are okay. I would tell myself as my heart raced inside my chest. You are okay, as my stomach churned with raging wasps instead of peaceful butterflies. You are okay, as I lay awake at night, creating monsters and demons out of shadows in my room. You are okay, as I was seriously not okay. From the age of 11, I was afraid of going to school where I was teased about everything from my body size to my slutty walk. The walk comment fascinates me now. It was even chastised by adults who told me it was too seductive. Welcome to womanhood, where you're only allowed to be sexy when we tell you to, and the rest of the time, you're a whore. At 14, during my first foray into the world of amateur theatre, I was told in front of the entire cast of The Sound of Music that if I didn't correct my walk, I wouldn't be allowed to play none number three. At 14, I was publicly slut-shamed for my walk. When I think about it now, I'm sure I was channeling my insecurities into what I thought was a strong, confident stride in the hopes that it would make me feel more powerful. That and the fact I came from a dance background. So, while everyone around me was trying to shrink themselves to fit in, I was puffing my chest out loud and proud, as if to say, Make way, world! I've arrived! The world would soon bite back. There is a myriad of reasons I could hypothesise as to the cause of my anxiety. My dad, working interstate with minimal contact for as long as I can remember... Ben and I being uprooted as infants and taken to a strange new land. Or Ben's severe asthma, which plagued my parents with worry for the first two years of his life and, understandably, drew attention away from me as a newborn. These were all destabilizing events for a very young child. But it's hard to point the finger and say this. This is what caused my unrelenting terror, because I never actually felt Traumatized. What I do remember is regularly watching horror flicks like Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and Even The Shining at a friend's house in primary school, then lying awake for hours afterwards, petrified. And I remember the moment when I had watched one film too many. Something in me just snapped. To this day, my family and I refer to The Sixth Sense as the film that shall not be named because it was the straw that broke this camel's back. After seeing this film at the cinema when I was 10, I didn't sleep properly again for two years. I had to play the radio at full volume and make my room so bright it resembled a torture technique used by the cartel. (sighs) Ah, soothing. Every time I closed my eyes, I could see Haley Joel Osmet's creepy little face getting locked in a cupboard, or Misha Button choking down poison soup. Nobody needs that much Haley Joel in their life. Nobody. I had no idea it was unusual to feel like you could die at any moment. Did you know guinea pigs are so sensitive that the slightest change in environment can shock them to death? Yeah, dat me. When I was at school, I would worry about having to go home, where sleep and nightmares were inevitable. Though school wasn't exactly a sanctuary either. The anxiety got in the way of my learning and I was badly bullied. I was trapped in a constant cycle of fear that would last the entirety of my school career. But unlike that little guinea pig... I was never given the sweet relief of death. The first time I became aware that I was lesser than the other girls was in kindergarten, at just four years old. I decided I must be the ugly kid during a game of Kiss Chasey because no one wanted to play with me. Who knows what those kids were really thinking? Probably that girls had cooties. But I clearly recall feeling that their disgust was my fault. Confused, I looked at my blonde, sun-kissed friend who didn't have my little belly of puppy fat and figured that must be it. That's why they don't like me. I'm fat, and fat is wrong. It's an interesting memory because it is so vivid, yet I'm unclear how I learned so young that being fat was the worst thing a girl could be. My parents never spoke critically about their bodies in front of me, or never commented negatively about mine. My first memory of being told I was fat wasn't until the ripe old age of seven, when a friend asked with a smirk, "'Why are you fat?' "'I don't know, bitch, why is your face so busted?' is what I should have said. But I just grimaced awkwardly and put down my ham and cheese sandwich. As a teenager in high school... I worked in before school care. I was preparing the kindy kids their snack one morning when I observed an interaction between a little boy and girl. The little girl sat at the table eating a slice of apple and rubbing her round belly. The little boy leaned over and started rubbing it too. He was beaming. I watched nervously, readying myself for a speech on bodily autonomy when he declared with utter appreciation... You have a beautiful belly. The little girl laughed and proudly presented her belly to the room. Everybody delighted in her full belly as she giggled and smiled, ear to ear. I often think about that exchange and wonder how different my body image would be if someone had responded to my differences with curious amazement rather than disdain. For me, the bullying was relentless. I was too embarrassed to tell my parents, so I bore the burden alone. Occasionally, I would tell mum about a new fad diet I was trying out, but I felt I had failed unless I'd lost a dress size in a week. I enjoyed dance, long walks listening to Jewel on my discman, and yoga, but loathed team sports the latter being unsurprising given that every time I tried to join in at school, I was reprimanded for letting the team down. When teams were picked for a game during PE, groans and eye rolls would emanate from the side that acquired a yours truly. At 33 years old, I still don't know how to catch a flying object because no one ever threw to me. Based entirely on how I looked, it was assumed I couldn't do sport. Thus, a self-fulfilling prophecy was born. You never get a chance to practice, so you never get any better. You continue to get teased and eventually abandon sports altogether, hence becoming fat. Every day, groups of preteen boys would remind me I was hideous, fat, and talentless. I remember gazing at myself in the mirror at 12 years old, thinking, I fucking hate you. You disgust me. At 11, I was already experimenting with extreme dieting and frequently ruminating about my body. I was a little pudgy, sure, but I was also a normal, healthy goddamn cutie pie. Yet, with nothing but their words... My classmates had turned my physical appearance into something monstrous, something worthy of their abuse. So began my unhealthy obsession with thinness. I stand with a long line of girls who are told they have such pretty faces, are surprisingly light on their feet, and would be really pretty if, insert generic weight loss suggestion. These comments came from teachers well-meaning friends, and occasionally their parents. In response, I was supposed to smile and be grateful. And pathetically, I did. And I was. The cruelty of the boys was nastier and undisguised. It wasn't that I was given swirlies with my head in the toilet bowl or had my lunch money stolen. In a way, that would have been preferable. At least it would have given me something concrete to report to my teachers. Instead, there were infinite subtle microaggressions that were easily missed unless you were the subject of them. It was a sniggering when I ordered my lunch at the tuck shop. It was the exact same lunch as the girl next to me, but it was unacceptable for me because I was chubby. It was impossible to win. If I ordered a sausage roll and twisties, I received judgmental jeers, suggesting no wonder she's fat. If I ordered a salad and Diet Coke, it was, yeah, right, as if you eat that. They would whisper and stare on swimming day, the worst day of the fucking year, because my thighs touched and my belly stuck out. Then there was the boy I liked, who by some miracle, actually liked me back he came right up to me in the first week of year seven and asked me for my phone number or landline back in those days quite bold for a 12 year old shit most men in their 30s are too afraid of rejection to pull that off i was impressed shaking i recited my phone number to him in disbelief Part of me was sure this was a cruel prank, the rest of me bursting with excitement. I went home that afternoon, sick with nerves, waiting for that call to come. Finally, the phone rang. I'll get it! I announced to the household a millisecond after the first ring. I had never been so nervous. Hello? I said, quiet as a mouse, and suddenly realised I was too nervous to produce any sound. Hello, it's James. Uh, is Kirsty there? Everyone in 2001 was called James. It's me. It's Kirsty. I replied, but only in my head. I was so overcome by the shock that he had actually called that I couldn't. Speak. Hello? Is anyone there? He said again. I was mortified. It took everything in me to squeak out the words, It's me. Oh, hey, he said, cool as anything. Sorry, I can't really hear you. Can you speak up a bit? I'm trying, I thought. Why is it so loud in my head, but any attempt to speak resulted in me opening and closing my mouth silently in the kitchen like a guppy? At that point, I must have blacked out because the rest of the conversation, if I can call it that, is a blur of me trying to breathe words into the phone loud enough for him to hear and him asking me to repeat myself. After a while, he gave up and said, Uh, Okay, well, see you at school, cursed. Oh, my God, he called me cursed. I mouthed the words goodbye, James, and he eventually hung up. I looked at the floor, waiting for it to open up and swallow me whole. But sadly, it did not. I hit myself in the head with the receiver a few times and hung up. Ah! I screamed, now seemingly able to produce sound. Despite this horrifying interaction, he still made an effort to gaze lovingly at me from across the classroom and talk to me at our lockers between classes. This lasted only a few bittersweet days before he began vehemently denying that he had ever liked me. It turns out he couldn't take the relentless ridicule thrown at him for having a crush on someone like me. What was wrong with someone like me? I know this because he told me himself years later. We were at a house party when we were 16. He fell into my arms drunkenly and poured his heart out about how he wasn't strong enough to carry the burden of loving me. He couldn't take the bullying. I comforted him as he cried because of course I did. I hated myself, but I still loved him. Throughout high school, I became so desperate to lose weight that some days all I ingested was celery sticks and water flavoured with Barocca yet I still had all eyes on me during health class when the subject of obesity came up. It was constant and humiliating, and it bred paranoia. To this day, I hate my physical appearance and fear that weight gain will result in ridicule and assumptions of laziness, uselessness. I fear it probably more than anything else in the world. Though, I wasn't innocent either. I felt so small and insignificant after years of incessant humiliation and name-calling that I took out my hurt on people who never deserved it. I could be intimidating and mean. Of course, I only ever picked on kids younger than me. What a big, strong girl I was bullying those who couldn't fight back. If I have contributed to anyone's lifelong insecurities or suffering with my cruelty as my bullies have done for me, that will be the deepest shame of my life. To those people, I am so sorry. I know it is such a small, insignificant word. I know it means nothing if the damage is already done. And I know it's not enough. I just hope that the rest of your world was kinder to you than I was, and that you flourished in spite of me. In my 12 years of schooling, I only had one teacher who noticed what I was going through and made a conscious effort to protect me. Not by calling people out, which he knew would only make things worse, but by avoiding situations that would invite derision. Mr. Howes taught PE and maths, my two most dismal subjects, and therefore minefields for taunting. On this particular day, it was time to test our sit-up game. Now, as a teen, I had yet to discover the joys of cardio. JK, there are none. (laughs) But... I had dusted off mum's old Jane Fonda bums, tums, and thighs VHS tape in an attempt to fit the mold. Naturally, it didn't change my body shape one iota because of my peasant genes. Cheers, manpa. pa. But beneath all that jiggled, I was strong. The test was to attempt a hundred sit-ups in a row. I smashed it out of the park with ease. But, as the class called out their scores, 47, 72, 81, I was getting progressively more anxious about announcing my own. I knew that in admitting my perfect score to the class, I wouldn't be met with congratulatory responses, but rather a barrage of disbelief from the boys who considered themselves athletes yet had failed at the task. When it came to my name on the roll, Mr. Howes looked at me and mouthed, One hundred. I replied with a subtle nod, he marked it down, and we moved on. The class was none the wiser and I saved my dignity. It may sound small, but this one act of kindness made me feel seen. This teacher knew what I had been going through and understood that even a positive achievement could be twisted and used against me. The fact I had to hide my successes to protect the fragile egos of those little boys enrages me now. But at the time, I was just a timid little kid. So I would retreat into my wobbly shell and try to blink my tears away until I got home. It would be remiss of me to lay all of my self-loathing and body dysmorphia on the shoulders of a few 13-year-old dickheads. I also grew up at a time when print media was still highly prized and Dolly magazine was allowed to routinely post articles about how the Olsen twins stay, oh, so tiny. Do you want to know how? Because I will never forget it. They claimed to put a little squirt of dishwashing soap on all their meals. That way their food tasted so awful they could stomach no more than a few bites. Mother of fuck? That is a real article that was really allowed in a magazine designed for children. Of all the people who had to sign off on it prior to publication, how is it that... No one saw a problem there. This is what I came to believe was expected in order to achieve success in the entertainment industry. Something I wanted more than anything. Every week during library reading time, I would slip my aspirational teen dream magazines underneath the bookshelves, sliding my celebrity Bible out inch by inch as I read to avoid getting caught. I'd gaze in desperate admiration at Britney Spears' midriff and Kirsten Dunst's iconic Bring It On Body. I wanted to be them so bad, it was like a gnawing ache inside me. I would lie on the floor of the school library as I scoured these magazines for celebrity diet tricks. I found reading books impossible. It broke my brain to try and understand the works of Shakespeare of Mice and Men, or Eli. But I could study a diet journal like nobody's business. I learned that carbs are the devil and to fear them at all costs. I discovered the importance of egg white omelets and the benefit of replacing meals with water flavoured with maple syrup, lemon juice and cayenne pepper. Yum yum. Nothing came easily to me at school. I was a below average student with severe anxiety and mild learning difficulties. These days, they would likely diagnose me as having dyslexia and dyscalculia, perhaps even some of the ADD varieties. I would fixate on the things I liked, like music and drama, but couldn't for the life of me concentrate on anything I wasn't interested in, i.e everything else. In certain subjects like maths and history, I simply gave up. Having fallen so far behind, I was too overwhelmed to try and catch up. I'd watch students and teachers become frustrated with me because I held the class back with my incompetence. I lost count of the times I sat at the kitchen table, head in hand and bored to tears as dad tried to explain basic maths to me. I felt like an idiot. Teachers must have thought I didn't try, but I did. I drove myself mad with studying, but nothing went in because I didn't understand the words on the page. My best option was rote learning, which was limited in its usefulness. Each time there was a test or quiz, I would read the questions over and over, trying to make sense of things. I would know all the individual words but was unable to put them together in a cohesive sentence in my brain. I liken it to learning a new language. When you're starting out, you learn a lot of vocabulary and are able to understand many individual words, but as soon as they are mashed together in a sentence, it's gobbledygook. Other times, my brain would almost split in two one half continuing to uselessly read the words while the other half sang Mandy Moore's Candy on repeat. I would become sick with anxiety as I felt the tick of the clock bearing down upon me. Oh, right. To anyone under 30, 90s Mandy Moore was a pop star before she decided to dye her hair brown and become a serious actress. Perhaps in an attempt to limit my feelings of failure at an academic and sporting level, I developed an overriding obsession with the things I was naturally good at, like music and performance. More accurately, with fame. Having received some encouragement through several years of choir, I added cello lessons, dance, drama classes and private singing tuition. My goal was to be a triple threat by the time I was 16, like Britney Spears in Crossroads era. She was brilliant, okay? But as the only vocal coach in school was classically trained, I was forced into a more Charlotte Church-like bubble. Not great for my already dwindling popularity, but fabulous for my vocal development. When, not anxiously shivering in the corner like a freezing chihuahua, I spent my youth pursuing my fame objective like a job. It was more important than education, more important than friendship, and certainly more important than my sanity. It was all I cared about. Well, that and love. This is cute when you're five and tap dancing your way into your mother's heart, It becomes less adorable as youth recedes and your thirst for approval has become nauseatingly palpable. Still, I didn't care. I had my goal, and nothing was going to get in my way. You know that shit you see written on throw pillows at your aunt's house? Reach the sun and you'll end up among the stars. Well, screw that, I thought. I am the sun, and you will revolve around me. I felt like I had this powerful secret. I'd been blessed with a vision of my destiny, and if I could just work really hard and throw everything I had into my craft, I would achieve greatness. Most of the time, however, while waiting for my sun to rise, I was burdened by crippling self-doubt and a constant sense of failure, vehemently confirmed by my classmates. In truth, I was pretty good. I had a nice enough voice to score some places and a couple of teen vocalist dead vids, and continued to perform in amateur theatre with retired drama folk and young desperados just like me. But good wasn't good enough to be noticed. And as the years went by the burden of failure grew. Eventually, I was forced to admit I was no longer enjoying myself. In fact, I was really struggling. I had turned something I enjoyed into a kind of evangelical commitment. I wasn't just under my own personal pressure to succeed, but I would be denying my God-given gifts if I decided I wanted to direct my attention elsewhere. Despite the taunting I received or the numerous soul-crushing disappointments I endured, I never gave myself a break. I didn't know how. Now that I've been diagnosed with Bipolar II disorder, these wild shifts in my sense of self and general inability to experience middle ground emotions make much more sense. But when you are young, your feelings are gospel. All you can rely on to understand the world are your feelings, and I had a lot of them. It was humiliating to learn that what I had identified as guidance from above was nothing more than mental illness. I wasn't special. I wasn't chosen to achieve greatness by some higher power. I was sick. I was delusional. And everyone who had laughed at the stars in my eyes and put me down had been right. You would think that being so harshly judged throughout my school career, largely by boys, would have led me to disregard the male species, but it didn't. In fact, it made me seek their approval with even more fervor and desperation. I'd been so damaged by their daily comments about my appearance and abilities, or lack thereof, that I had no self-esteem left to bolster myself up. I gave them all my power and decided they must know best. If everyone is saying I'm wrong, it must be true. It was a deeply confusing time because I could seemingly do nothing right. And all I wanted was to get whatever it was right. Even on the days I saw my reflection and was lucky enough to see myself for what I truly was, a goddamn gift to the universe. By the end of the school day, having been chastised for everything from how my curls looked like pubic hair, to wearing too much or too little makeup, and of course my overall fatness, I resented myself again. I was never free of their abuse because even when they weren't around, their voices rang so loud in my head that I would end up berating myself as their stand-in. I yo-yo dieted for years, eventually successfully developing anorexia. Sadly, this actually helped with my popularity. Ugh, society, be better. I began to believe that I was absolutely worthless and that they were the all-knowing deities of my adolescence. If I could just make them love me, I would be okay. If they loved me, I was lovable, but they didn't. So I wasn't. There were times I even relished the bullying At least I was receiving some form of attention. For a moment, I was being noticed. And that was worth something. No, it was worth everything.